Hi, with an article in The Guardian uh, by a sociologist, <clears throat> and uh, he described himself as a political economist, William Davies, um, purporting to explore the reasons for Johnson and the Tory party's electoral success. Now, given that this is a sociologist in The Guardian, you can be sure that uh, he's uh, discomfited by the, the Tory party's success, first in 2019 and then uh, recently in 2021. And uh, he suggests that the, the reason why the Johnson government has been successful is because he's managed to do something which people haven't noticed, which is to distance himself from the, I suppose a sociologist would call it the hegemony of um, Gordon Brown's treasury. In other words, uh, Johnson's been able to do what nobody's done before, which is to escape the uh, kind of macroeconomic assumptions, the, the big economy assumptions that Gordon Brown managed to introduce into, into British politics. Um, I, I suppose if it was a murder mystery, you would call it uh, Who Killed Prudence? Because Johnson seems to have uh, managed to escape the the narrative that Gordon Brown imposed on uh, British politics when the Labour won the election in 1997. He continually talked about prudence with a purpose. And, uh, of course, that set him up for being hung by his own petard in 2008-9 when the financial crisis hit because... It didn't look terribly prudent, and they were spending forty billion uh, a year uh, during an economic upturn, uh, more than they were raising in taxation, which again is something that shouldn't have happened according to his own rules. Uh, I think that happened from about two thousand and four onwards, from memory. So, um, as I say, the, the the narrative of prudence was used to hang Labour, and of course, uh, poor Ed Miliband in twenty fifteen made the big mistake of suggesting that. Um, maybe the, the Labour government hadn't spent too much money and that wasn't what caused the 2008-2010 crisis. And of course, he was probably right about that. Most people would agree that it wasn't the overspending. It was maybe banking regulation, uh, an unregulated mortgage market, but it wasn't simply the overspending. But he made the big mistake of telling people what they weren't prepared to hear. And in that moment, the, the election was pretty much lost. So Johnson has been able to be careless with the public finances, some people on the right would say, or he's managed to spend a lot of money, to put it neutrally, in a way that Labour couldn't have imagined. Um, there are a lot of different arguments as to why Labour's been successful in the North. Um, and uh, you can argue about which particular swathe of the North matters electorally, because the, there's been, it's been a long-standing feature of British politics that you don't win by uh, persuading either of the, the hardcore factions. You win, you know, there's no point in p pitching policies to the, uh, the the major cities alone. You've got to win in the places where the marginal seats are and where the marginal voters are. The only voters that matter in an election are the ones who are living in a marginal seat who might vote for you, um, particularly if, they, if they're, they're swithering between um, the Tories and Labour. And they reckon there might be as few as 800,000 key voters um, in the UK, um, and, that, and they're all people living in places in Yorkshire and Humberside, or you can put it a little bit further north or south, but somewhere around that part of the country, swing voters and marginal constituencies are the key, and you win the election by appealing to them, and of course, it seems as if uh, Johnson's managed to appeal to them. So, and and one of, one of the long-term stories, which um, Davies doesn't mention, is the uh, supposed um, clever abandonment of the Labour Party of Wales and Scotland uh, and some parts of, of the, the industrialised north in favour of the broad swathe of the country on the assumption that places like Hartlepool could never vote Tory and therefore you can afford to abandon them and uh, they're arguably now getting bitten by their own approach 
especially it happened first in Scotland, of course, when uh, the existence of a Scottish Parliament meant that people found out early that they could vote for somebody other than Labour. Because it seemed as if the choice was vote Labour or don't vote at all, because it's pointless to vote for anyone else. And what devolution uh, and the elections in 2003, 7 and 11 taught people was that it was possible to vote for the SNP and for that vote to be effective. So the uh, the Labour strategy um, of the 1994-97 period through to 2001 arguably has now bitten them in the ass and they're losing places like Hartlepool. But anyway, so Davies is um, exploring why Johnson and the Tory party are managing to win. And you can argue it's partly Johnson's personal appeal. You can argue it's get Brexit done. Um, I, sh- I should say I'm paraphrasing what uh, Davies is claiming here. I'll look at uh, what I think are the problems in it shortly. But, um, but why, why uh, 2019 and then 2021 and the various mayoral elections and local elections, why the Tories have done well um, is open for debate. And uh, Davies' pitch is that um, it's because Johnson's managed to escape the Gordon Brown view um, of government, uh, a government essentially dominated by an austere treasury view, um, a treasury management across government departments and a commitment to borrowing only to invest which Johnson uh, has disregarded, which the voters disregarded as a as a, a threat. Before the 2016 election, the voters were told there would be massive economic consequences if we dared to vote to leave the European Union. And the voters were sufficiently reckless or perceptive, depending on what view you take, to vote for Brexit. And nothing too bad happened. Uh, and Johnson, it seems, has either understood uh, the economy better than some others, or more likely, He's just as reckless and as bold and as daring as the voters are. But either way, um, it's possible that what he's done is he's, he's won elections um, by by proving, as Marx would say, the this-sidedness of his theory and practice. In other words, he's went ahead and done it, and he's proven to be right. So that, that's Davies's view. Davies's view is that um, Boris Johnson, for one reason or another, has managed to escape Gordon Brown's paradigm uh, of what the Treasury should be. He relates the standard story of the, the creation of the New Labour movement. Um, John Smith dies Hillwalking, I think, in 1994. I seem to remember. I was in the publics department in 1994, I believe, when he died. And uh, his daughter um, was one of the politics students in the department. So the secretaries and the lecturers were up to, as we would say in Scotland, up to high do um, over the situation. I think everyone was quite shocked when he died. But the foundational story of New Labour is that Smith dies and then Brown and Blair carve up um, the, the policy um, responsibilities. So essentially, Gordon Brown becomes Clement Attlee to Tony Blair's Churchill and Brown acquires responsibility for all of the domestic policy uh, and he'll manage that through the Treasury, uh, an end to so-called departmentalitis. So the Treasury will give you a lump of money in return for you meeting certain policy objectives that you agreed with them, and you won't get the next lump of money until you satisfy the Treasury. You've spent the first lot wisely. So Blair's to become Prime Minister um, after this meal in Granita, the, the restaurant, I think, was where they went. And uh, and that's the, 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 the foundational myth. That was the point where if, if Tony Blair didn't draw the sword from the stone, uh, he at least handed over the chequebook to Gordon Brown in a similar piece of symbolism. And of course that's been confirmed. People like Alan Milburn and um, uh, Frank Field have confirmed that that basically is what happened. Um, and the conduct of Brown in government after that point pretty much was that of somebody who'd been granted carte blanche um, and could do what he liked with the other departments. Now, 
Ed Balls, the the uh, the dancer uh, married to um, Yvette Cooper, Ed Balls was um, Brown's deputy, and they, they conceived of the problem, as Davies puts it, as being how to actually have enough money to spend on worthy causes, um, transfer payments to individuals, health and, uh, and education spending, without frightening the horses. And uh, the way that they did that was to set up an Operation Independent Bank of England. Now, the story of how that was done was quite something, because it wasn't in the manifesto uh, in express terms, and there wasn't a cabinet discussion before it took place. And uh, the permanent secretary, I'm sure, expressed his concern that they just went ahead and did it. The Bank of England Act that gave a, a legal footing for the Operation Independence took place a year after Brown had told the Bank of England that they would have operational independence and that they would set interest rates. So it was done in a pretty kind of um, you know, dictatorial way and it was designed to reassure the financial markets because the idea is that if you, if you dare to spend too much money um, it will cause inflation and the Bank of England will jack up interest rates and therefore there's no point. So essentially you're binding yourself to the mast. So the, 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 act, the first act of the new Labour government was to remove uh, their discretion, to be seen to remove their discretion, to throw away um, their choices and to be seen to do so. Billy Connolly tells a funny story about a guy interfering in a fight in a tough bit of Glasgow, Anderson, and the guy throws away his fish supper, um, which of course isn't, there's no going back. Uh, once you've thrown away your fish supper, you've, uh, you've indicated that combat is inevitable. So the, uh, the, the Ken and Eddie show, as it had been called before, where Ken Clark and Eddie George, I think it was, the government of the Bank of England got together and had a meeting about interest rates. That ended, and what you had was an operationally independent Bank of England, uh, a proper central bank that would punish the government if it dared to uh, run up loads of debt in a way that was unsustainable and cause inflation. So the, the, the commitment was to only borrow to invest. You wouldn't pay nurses' wages um, out of borrowing you would only uh, borrow for assets that are going to be themselves productive. So the, the, the distinction might be between nurse training and nurse wages, um, but uh, it's not a hard and fast distinction, but it's fairly clear uh, in reality. You don't borrow money to simply give to people to spend. You only borrow money over the economic cycle. In other words, you borrow more when things are looking bad. You borrow more when the economy is in a downturn. Um, but you, uh, you require the departments to explain what they're going to do with the money and you don't allow them to use borrowing um, to finance recurrent expenditure. Uh, and uh, Davies chooses to characterise this as a kind of commitment to neoclassical economics. Personally, I think neoclassical economics is mainly about the theory of the firm, and government's got a very small part to play. There's a guy called, I think, Skidelsky, who wrote a book called Money and Government, pointing out that too often people don't take uh, appropriate notice of the role of money and government in economics. And I think that's a, a fair criticism of neoclassical economics. It's mainly about business and the, and the consumer. So Brown commits himself to this uh, stricture because the alternative is um, the investors become uh, concerned that Labour won't be able to pay back in hard currency. They fear inflation and they start to dump the pound and they start to dump British debt and that drives up interest rates. So in order to avoid that, they have their uh, independent Bank of England uh, Monetary Policy Committee. And they commit themselves. A 1977 article apparently was quite influential, that politicians tend to do better if they avoid decisions case by case and just commit themselves to uh, a policy process or a, a, a prejudice, if you like, a prejudgment as to the kind of things that you're going to do. So an example of that would be we're not going to own businesses. We will we'll simply favour the market. 
um, or alternatively, we'll, we'll always have competition for the field. So every single time there's a, a water company or a power company, the presumption will be in favour of having a competition and one company will win and they'll run it for a period of time. So the 1977 article that Balls and Brown were impressed with um, suggested that politicians can't afford to trust themselves and have discretion. So they should commit themselves to a set of um, policy prejudices that will allow them to dismiss certain things that are suggested by departments or by pressure groups or whatever. And that will typically keep you on an even keel better than trusting yourself. And uh, Davies says that kind of cost-benefit analysis, that kind of commitment to a, a very um, cost and management accountant view of how to spend your money, that continued through the uh, coalition and into the, the uh, Cameron uh, May governments. So for 20 years, essentially, um, government was synonymous with a kind of treasury view. Peter Middleton, a former permanent secretary, um, dismissed this criticism of the treasury. He said that the, the treasury always gets the blame for um, for all the tough decisions that people have to make, particularly Labour governments. You know, there's these terrible people in the treasury that won't let us do these things. But, uh, but that treasury view, which you could describe as the adult in the room view, but that treasury view dominated um, for 20 years. And uh, consequently, government became all about um, about ledgers. And the, the old criticism of the Tory party that um, they know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Well, that, to some extent, that became the view. Um, that's maybe unfair, but uh, but certainly Gordon Brown um, thought that, uh, it, that markets didn't always work because consumers, especially when it comes to public sector goods, um, don't know what they're buying. And therefore, unless government is the informed consumer, you can expect things to start going wrong. And uh, I think in common with a lot of others in the Labour movement, by, the, by 1997, they were pretty suspicious about the role of the trade unions in policy development and what they would do. So the, uh, the, this, this view, um, this sort of broad centre, centre-right view, dominated policy for the best part of 20 years. And uh, government, therefore, was synonymous with economic decision-making and cost-benefit analysis. That's what government was reduced to. Now, what happened with Brexit, um, and this is a fair point that Davies makes, what happened with Brexit was that people kind of um, saw that the Treasury tried to scare them into vote and remain, and it didn't work. And they were, they were told all kinds of terrible consequences would follow, as I said earlier, and they didn't. And in the period after Brexit, um, we've spent a lot of money, and of course COVID put rocket boosters on this. We've spent a lot of money, and there hasn't seen to, been seen to be a terribly negative consequence from this. It hasn't looked as if the threats amounted to a hell of beans. And Johnson is now in a position where he's spending money, um, or his government is spending money, in a way that nobody thought possible, and are committing to spend money in the future in a way that would have seemed impossible recently with this levelling up agenda, which he, he refuses to back down on. COVID has not caused them to reconsider how much money they can spend. Quite the opposite. Uh, they're doubling down on their, on their spending commitments. And he doesn't have a, um, a minister like uh, even Osborne to Cameron. Famously, the Quad ran the country during the coalition. Uh, Dan Alexander and Nick Clegg, the Liberal Democrats, and Osborne and Cameron, the Tories. Um, Osborne was more of an alternative to Cameron than Sajid Javid or Rishi Sunak are to Boris Johnson. There's no obvious successor to Johnson, um, thinks Davies. Um, and consequently, the, the government can take on a, a kind of tincture of, of Johnsonianism 
And uh, so, for example, you get uh, ministers like Jenrick uh, and Dowden who are doing the exact opposite of what a, a rules-based system would involve. I don't get, don't get into the details of Jenrick's behaviour, but a lot of people think some of the de decisions he made um, were questionable. And one person, of course, uh, an ethicist and, and, uh, and an investigator, I can't remember his name, Robert Allen, I think, but one, one resigned uh, precisely because Johnson was prepared to criticise um, his his behaviour in government. So there's been a move away from prudence and process and iron discipline and committing yourself to rules to a, a slacker system with more money getting spent in what seemed to be fairly um, ill-disciplined, if not reckless, ways and uh, and ministers behaving in ways that really wouldn't have been tolerated in a, in a brown government where there would be no, no more departmentalitis you could say that Johnson's government has got quite a lot of departmentalitis when it comes to the behaviour of people like Jenrick or Matt Hancock or uh, a number of others. So the, um, the, 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 the government has behaved very differently and it hasn't seemed to make a difference. The, the market's appetite for British debt seems insatiable. So where Gordon Brown worried about borrowing to invest over the economic cycle, it now looks as if you can borrow indefinitely at 0%. Um, and just spend money um, as if it uh, as if it grew in trees. So Brown and Bowles could never have imagined the kind of um, spending that's been pro that's been proven to be possible. And it makes it look as if there was no rationale for the austerity from um, twenty ten to twenty sixteen, say or seventeen. It looks as if all the spending cuts were unnecessary. If you can spend sixty billion on wages um, out of nowhere then it begins to look as if the treasury model um, of the economy and what the economy can take and what the debt market can take, it looks as if that's false. As Davy says, it looks as if Rishi Sunak has uh, make, made himself a popular chancellor precisely by undermining the treasury's claims uh, regarding the management of the economy and what's possible. So, uh, just to conclude, it, it looks as if, according to Davies, that, um, that Johnson is synonymous with everything that is um, English um, and Brexit and uh, consequently people discount his uh, behaviour, they discount his, his mistakes, they discount the little peccadillos. Um, they, when they find out that um, he's taking holidays or having his flat decorated at somebody else's expense perhaps, they don't really care because he's seen to be a swashbuckling, freewheeling English Brexiteer and they've already discounted anything that could be said about him. The, the Labour Party still looks like the Labour Party, to some extent, of Gordon Brown, a party of the metropolis, a party of the treasury, um, a party of Britishness rather than Englishness. And that's looking as if it's not playing very well with the electorate. And uh, it's looking as if the criticisms of Labour uh, before 2010 are sticking. The idea that they spent too much money, uh, the idea that, uh, the, uh, the, as Liam Byrne said in a note to his treasury successor, uh, I'm sorry, there's no money left. That was intended to be humorous, but it stuck around uh, with Labour for a long time. Um, that idea that they've been reckless. Liam Byrne bitterly regrets writing that note, and I, I personally don't think the uh, the Tory should have leaked it. But that libel has stuck on Labour. Um, and uh, as, as Davy says, it looks as if um, actually obeying rules and trying to influence the public's perception of you by changing the reality that they should see, that doesn't work. What actually works is perceptions. So if, if the public think that uh, you were reckless in government and spent too much money, there's nothing you can really do 
uh, by way of either prudent spending before 2007-2008 or appropriate counter-cyclical spending after 2008 in order to prevent a complete economic collapse. There's nothing you can do either by way, as I say, of being prudent before the collapse or in the case of Ed Miliband in 2015 explaining why counter-cyclical spending is a good idea. There's nothing you can do because the public's perception is everything. And if you're, if you're appealing to the public's perception by running with the grain of their prejudices, in other words, if you're giving them reasons to think that they're already right, then it's quite easy to get them to accept something. And the, the Tory narrative about um, you know, not fixing the roof when the sun was shining and spending too much money, uh, that sticks quite well. So for the Labour activists, Blair is all about the Iraq war, but for the Labour voters, uh, the, uh, the Labour government was all about uh, this kind of uh, view of how the world works that Gordon Brown typified and was and which was ultimately seen to be um, misguided or, or mistaken. Um, so as, as Davies says, they, they never managed to find a way to tell the public what the Treasury was doing and why this way of going on was uh, was good and appropriate. And they did a lot just to, I mean, they doubled spending in education, they doubled spending in health, they created a system of in-work welfare that got a lot of people into jobs, even if they were part-time jobs and fairly low-skilled. I mean, I might not agree with the uh, the system of in-work welfare, but there's not much doubt that they did a, they did a lot to change the country. The, the system of ASBOs addressing antisocial behaviour has had a 20-year impact, I think. Um, you can see the difference. Anyone that was around in the 80s and 90s knows that when Labour sorted out any social behaviour problem, it's stuck. You know, it's had a big impact on behaviour ever since. So the the conclusion is that it's only the uh, nations and the cities that are, that seem to have political momentum behind them at the moment. Uh, there's, there's places where Labour does well, but these are places where they're doing as well as they're ever going to do and they can't win elections because the big changes are taking place in places like um, Scotland, which has obviously turned SNP, and in some of the uh, major cities, the leave voting cities that have turned towards the Tories. So Labour needs to find a whole new way to explain what it's about to the public, because a few things like, for example, um, being seen to be appreciative of the Union flag, um, or being seen to be patriotic, or trying to seem less London-centric, none of that's going to make enough of a difference, um, thinks Davies, who's obviously, as I say, a Labour man and trying to find a way for them to win. So they're going to have to find a way to explain what it is that they do and why it's uh, why it's the right thing to do. Because at the moment, the Tory party under Boris Johnson has uh, seems to have gambled and won. Um, Napoleon, of course, always asked of his generals, are they lucky? And, uh, and when you look at Johnson's career, it seems as if he, he bounces from one disaster to the next without ever actually coming unstuck. And it looks as if right now he's been lucky once again. So that's the gist of Davies' article. Um, Boris Johnson and the Tory party have done well by escaping the gravitational pull that Gordon Brown's view of government and the Treasury created um, in the 97-2007 period. Now, I think there are some issues with this article. And uh, one of the most obvious ones is that there's a big distinction between what Johnson did and what happened. And uh, the uh, the success in 2019, very obviously, was um, was all about get Brexit done. Because the public were sick to the back teeth of three years of the Remainers in Parliament and elsewhere trying to frustrate the outcome of the vote. 
Um, as I've said before, Joe Swinson and Nick Clegg jumped the shark when it came to that. Gina Miller um, is more forgivable for the simple reason that she was a private individual. Uh, but the, uh, the elected politicians uh, like Dominic Grieve uh, and Amber Rudd, who tried to ignore the vote, um, really had gone too far. And that was a large part of the reason why um, Johnson did so well with Get Brexit Done, because people were frustrated to the back teeth with uh, the period, the three-year period. But there's a big difference between saying that something happened, in this case the COVID crisis, and the market's appetite for debt went through the roof um, because the, there was nowhere else to save. Um, if, you, if you weren't actually part of the global economy that was destroyed by COVID or made inactive, if you lived in a country like China where they couldn't afford to put everyone in furlough, then uh, what were you going to do with all the, uh, the pounds that you were earning from shipping things to the UK other than stick them into British debt? So there's a big difference between what um, Johnson did and by implication what anyone could have done before that point and um, what happened. And the thing about Davies is that he's a, a sociologist and a political economist and probably a man of the left, I suspect. And uh, he thinks that, he, he implies that others could have done um, what Johnson did and that Labour perhaps could. They too could escape the Treasury model, the, um, the austerity, the cost-benefit analysis, the only investing uh, during a downturn in order to invest for growth over the period of the economic cycle, never borrowing to spend on recurrent expenditure and so on. He, he implies that the Johnson approach to the economy in the wake of COVID was an approach that was open to Osborne and Cameron uh, before COVID and May as well, and is open to Labour now. And I suspect that's false. I suspect, in actual fact, the indulgence that the market seems to have given Western economies is precisely because there's an expectation that COVID is uh, just a one-off hit and uh, and therefore it doesn't actually tell you something about what the governments are going to do in the medium term. I suspect that if in, in 2010 the economic crisis had resulted in a, a, just a straightforward continuation of the very high levels of health and education spending and welfare spending that Britain had in 2010, um, if we'd continued like that, um, I think there might have been a reaction. Now, of course, we don't know. But I think Davies assumes that COVID proves that big government deficits and big increases in debt are unproblematic. Um, and I'm not sure that that's true. Um, now, on the, on the business of um, you know, Peter Middleton and the, and, the, and the Treasury view of the economy, the modern view, uh, and it finds its highest expression in the modern monetary theory view, is that governments, of course, don't tax and spend. They spend and tax. Uh, governments are issuers of their own currency, and uh, and therefore you know you you can spend money up to the point of inflation, and then you tax to remove that inflation. Now there's probably some truth in that. It's probably a reasonable way to think of a money supply. It's certainly a possible way to think of a money supply. But it's also true that um, Peter Middleton and the, and the Treasury view that resources are finite, and that the government uh, spend, the private sector spend the tax rate, bond yields and interest rates are all in balance together, looking out at a two-year um, time frame with a view to avoiding inflation and a view to keeping confidence in the currency and in the debt. That's true as well. And uh, Davies seems to assume that a much more left-wing, and as he would probably doubtless put it, pro-growth um, option was always available. I, th I think there's an awful lot of truth in the uh, the Gordon Brown uh, pre-2007 uh, view 
that the financial markets are ever ready um, to dump the pound and dump British debt and, uh, and drive up interest rates. I've got a colleague, uh, a former colleague, who's a man of the left, and uh, he likes the idea that there are no such things as bond vigilantes. You know, Bill Clinton's famous quip that if he's coming back, uh, he's coming back as something powerful. He's coming back as the as the bond market. Um, he, he, my colleague, former colleague, thinks that, uh, that this is nonsense, that bond vigilantes don't exist. They most certainly do. Um, and if people start to dump your currency and dump your bonds and drive up interest rates, and you want to remain part of the international uh, community, you want to be seen to be a responsible manager of your own national currency, then you're going to have to jack up interest rates and accept higher bond yields. If you start to actually sell your debt straight to the central bank and have them simply credit your account without ever testing the market's appetite for your debt, um, then you'll cause a, a crisis, you'll cause a currency crisis. The, um, the, the, an awful lot of people don't realise how the, the system actually works at the minute. They don't appreciate that um, quantitative easing, for example, right now involves a commitment to compensating the Bank of England for any losses that it makes if it sells debt um, and, the, and at the redemption point there's a, there's a loss. It's possible to buy government debt and at the end of the period to actually make a loss. And uh, the Bank of England has already got the government to agree long ago, five years ago, got them to agree that if that happened through a QE programme, um, but you know at the point when you buy it, you know whether you're going to make a nominal loss when you buy. But they, they got the government to agree that taxes would be raised and that money would be cancelled as well in order to make it absolutely abundantly clear that this wasn't just monetization, this wasn't just inventing money and allowing government to spend it. So, as I say, the, um, uh, the, the, the criticism of the Cameron Osborne, um, uh, Dan Alexander uh, coalition, the, the Clegg coalition, um, the, the criticism of that and the austerity programme 2010 is predicated in the idea that we've proven we can spend lots of money during COVID and therefore we could have done it earlier. Uh, and that doesn't seem to me to be self-evident. Now, the uh, so that the idea that the restraints are, are false seems, that the restraints are, uh, are not there seems false. On, this, on the subject of cost-benefit analysis, it seems to me that, that the, the major weakness in policy isn't that we're overly committed to cost-benefit analysis. The um, big weakness in policy is that we're insufficiently rigorously committed to cost-benefit analysis. If you look at, um, for example, education spend, we don't assess the actual outputs of the universities very efficiently at all. 7% of British graduates are functionally illiterate. Uh, and that's a major, major problem if you're spending huge sums of public money on tuition fees that will never be repaid because the graduates will never earn enough money. So effectively, what you've done is dramatically increase higher education access without ever actually um, making the system of loans a real system of loans because you've allowed the universities to create lots of graduates who won't ever be able to pay you back. And indeed, in, in, as, they, as they try to pay you back, they're facing very high rates of marginal tax um, as soon as they start earning any money. So it's got a whole lot of negative consequences and we've never actually tried to analyse the output of some of these degrees. When we look at COVID and the COVID crisis, it seems as if we've abandoned the quality adjusted life year as a measure. And we're now spending huge sums of money to avoid deaths from COVID when we would never have spent that kind of money to avoid other deaths. So as recently as I think 2015, we had 58,000 excess deaths. And, uh, and the normal quality adjusted life year is £35,000. It seems to me 
Um, given that the average COVID death is over 82, it seems to me we've abandoned the, uh, the COVID-adjusted life here. Whether we really have, I mean, I, I know there are problems with long COVID. I know there are problems with um, non-fatal um, uh, consequences of COVID. So maybe I'm being, uh, you know, too harsh. But it doesn't look as if it doesn't look as if cost-benefit analysis is is the problem that uh, that is is at the heart of our government. It seems to me that the absence of rigorous cost-benefit analysis is more often the problem. On the business of perceptions and. Uh, and whether um, you can actually shape the public's perception of you by doing something and requiring or you know hoping that the media will report it and the public will understand it, it's an interesting point because the, the I, I, I campaigned recently for election very unsuccessfully and it struck me that um, the public really didn't understand some of the most important things about what was being asked of them at the election. So every 100 people you spoke to, there might have been one or two that understood the crucial role of the electoral system and exactly what the impact was going to be um, on the Hollywood Scottish Parliament 2021 elections. So when, uh, when Brown tries to um, reassure the public and reassure the financial markets by adopting, for example, a rule that you'll only borrow to spend over the course of the, um, the cycle, the economic cycle, you'll only borrow for, uh, for proper investment, not for recurrent spending. Um, when, he, when he does that and, and hopes that the media will report it and they'll get a decent press and that the public will understand it, um, it seems to me that he's putting himself in the same position as another band standing in front of an angry crowd um, in 2015 or Neil Kinnock in front of an angry crowd in 1992 trying to talk about electoral reform. Um, the, uh, the, the, the cynical politicians um, who have read their Plato and, uh, and believe that Plato was right that you will never win an argument with a sausage seller in the street if you're a responsible politician. The the argument, uh, and it's, it's an interesting point that you can you can persuade activists, but the activists it seems to me get persuaded first by their loyalty to you and to the party, and then secondly, if at all, to the policy. So labour activists will say that uh, you have to spend during a recession because you have to keep growth going, and if growth happens then you'll be able to tax that growth and that will pay the debt off in itself. The one thing you shouldn't do is make the recession worse. If you collapse the tax base and you collapse economic activity, you'll collapse confidence and that will feed upon itself. So the last thing you do, I mean, in a, in a monetized economy, um, you can store cans of beans, but you can't store pounds. It's a very bad thing when you start storing money. Uh, my spending is your income and your spending is my income. So the instant that either of us tries to save because we're panicking about our debts, then we'll put the other person out of work and then put ourselves out of work. So there's all kinds of truths about left-wing economics. But it seems to me that people, among the public, there's people who don't believe it and then there's people who don't believe it but say they do because they're party activists and support us. The number of people who believe it because they understand why it's true is quite small. And uh, I think... Um, I think the uh, the Labour Party is going to be a very difficult place um, for the next few years because even if they've got uh, sound arguments, it's quite hard to get a hearing once you're unpopular because they're going to be in the position that the SNP, or r rather the Tory party through the SNP, they're going to be in the position that uh, the Tory party in Scotland are in. They can get a hearing because the SNP are in power and if you're in power, you can demand a hearing from the media um, uh, for a whole range of reasons, including, for example, giving advertising to newspapers and employing journalists 
as spin doctors and uh, and special advisors. So you cultivate a relationship in exactly the same way that Labour did in the early years with Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson as their, as their media managers and spin doctors. You cultivate a relationship which makes it easy to be heard if you've got success. And uh, they, ha they had an audience right up until Blair left. Even the calamity of the Iraq war didn't rob them of their ability to, to some extent, dictate the media agenda. They're in a terrible place now. They're in the same position as the Labour Party and the Tory Party in Scotland. Um, because once you're seen to be electorally um, crippled and you're never going to be in government, it's much less important to listen to you. You don't deserve a hearing because no one's worried about being in your bad books. No one's worried about being denied good stories. Uh, nobody's relying on you for tidbits. Um, Alistair Campbell, uh, before 1997 and certainly afterwards, was in an incredibly strong position to punish and reward um, Kampfner, I think, of the Financial Times. Um, Kampfner said that um, if you if you get on the wrong side of these spin doctors, your life becomes impossible. Whereas if you get on the right side of them, your life becomes very easy because they give you easy stories. For every story convenient to them that you publish without too much trouble, um, other stories come to you that are even better and more useful to you as a reward for compliance. So, uh, as I say, the, um, the business of trying to actually persuade the public by producing the truth and then hoping they'll see, that's very difficult in a mass democracy. Uh, and I think the sausage sellers win. Uh, I don't think the public are terribly interested in the detail of policy. And even among the activists, as I say, I don't think they're interested in the detail. They're interested in circumstantial support for their position as they argue with their friends. So, you know, pe people in the Tory party were very much in favour of Brexit. I'm not hugely interested in the difference between the single market and the internal market and the customs union. But they'll repeat enough of what they hear for the purpose of trying to shore up their arguments. Um, and as I say, the, uh, the, the Labour Party's attempt to um, make the public understand through simply getting it right, uh, that didn't work um, in the later part of... Two, because uh, Interestingly, when you come to explain it to somebody else, the, the, the thing that left the room with Blair in, I think, 2007 was charisma. Um, and again, that makes the same point. The, the reason why people were accepting Labour's arguments before 2007, by and large, wasn't because the arguments were stronger. It was because they were made, made by somebody who was more charismatic. Um, Gordon Brown can try to make an argument, but he's just not as charismatic and people won't listen. They weren't listening to Blair either. They were just trusting him, which is a different thing. Um, so, the, um, as I say, the, the real legacy, and just to conclude, the real legacy of um, Brown um, for the Labour Party was a legacy of a large public sector and a large in-work welfare system. And what that has done, um, it seems to me, in Scotland, is convince the uh, Scottish people that they can double down, that the extraordinary spending, because Scotland's by and large been insulated from the worst of the austerity. Um, so what, what has happened through the new Labour project, 1997-2010, is that Scotland has become possessed of the idea that transfer payments and public sector jobs are uh, are infinitely expandable, and when Davies talks about the uh, the the uh, the country being divided, the political momentum uh, in the country being uh, in the big cities and in the nations, I think that those are two different things because the big cities, the leave voting cities are um, sick to death of being condescended to by uh, London Labour um, politicians who are falling over themselves to take a knee in their office in order, to, in order to be photographed and seen taking a knee. 
you know that that Angela Rayner and and uh, uh, Keir Starmer um, taking a knee on the carpet in front of a desk. I mean the the, the optics of that, um, especially the the facial expression Starmer as he did it, um, they, they were just terrible. So I think I think the Tory Party is winning uh, in the major cities, the leave voting cities, because like Donald Trump, um, Johnson and others are seen to be authentic. It's the politics of authenticity that's doing them a lot of good. The trouble um, in the nations is distinct from those leave voting cities, uh, particularly in Scotland. And I mean, when you look at the Welsh fiscal deficit, what people in, in Wales think they're talking about when they talk about the possibility of, of Welsh independence. But in Scotland, the, um, the SNP has managed to convince people that um, independence involves a doubling down in transfer payments and public sector jobs. They don't always say it just like that, but that's what they mean. And the reason why that seems plausible is because it happened from 1997 to 2010, um, and then they were insulated from most of the downturn after that, but still thought ill of those that subjected them to some of it. So the, the, the modest reductions in spend that took place after 2010, much, much worse in the, in the English regions. But the modest reductions were held to be an insult and an offence, because for 13 years people have become possessed of the idea that a 16-hour a, a week minimum wage job um, could possibly result in £2,500 uh, a month in family income. And, uh, and that, that happened. You know, um, I've got a, a pal as an employer who, as he says, can't get anybody to work less than 16 hours or more than 16 hours because if you're a single parent, that's the sweet spot. So by 2010, Labour had spent 13 years convincing people that most of the difficult things of the pre-1997 um, period were just basically inflicted on them for no good reason. And uh, post-2010, when the Tory party and the, and the, and the Liberal Democrats uh, coalition, when the Tory party started to govern and try to rein in some of the, uh, the momentum that had taken uh, hold, um, some of the spending commitments that seemed to be out of control, and as I say, it's not clear to me that just because you can spend money during a COVID crisis, you could have spent it earlier without the bond market doing anything. But the, the Tory party tried to do something about that in 2010. And the, the way this was interpreted in Scotland was that this was just a choice by wicked people who don't have the best interests of ordinary folk in mind. And that has fueled the SNP um, and their, their narrative that um, we, we never need to face a hard choice um, has, has taken hold. So, um, as I say, if, uh, if people in Scotland had, had understood that in 2015, when Nicola Sturgeon said that if you hold the balance, you hold the power, um, and Alex Salmond, of course, famously said that he would be writing Ed Balls's budget, if people in Scotland in 2015 had understood that that was a come-on and they were being encouraged um, to, uh, to vote SNP just as their leadership were encouraging people in the north of England to be terrified of an SNP Labour coalition, if the, if the folk in Scotland had understood that that was a, a contrivance, and I'm not 100% certain it was, but I don't think Nicholas Sturge and Alex Salmond are that stupid. So if, um, if, the, if folk had understood the danger of creating a, an SNP enclave, which would deny Labour 56 seats and turn the North of England against the Labour Party, partly because it was seen to be a party of metropolitan sophisticates who sneered at ordinary folk, and partly because it could only be a government if it was held in place by an SNP, uh, you know, faction from the north that would demand twice as much as it was entitled to. Um, if, the, if folk could have seen that, um, we wouldn't be in the position we're in, um, which of course is, in Scotland, faced with either misgovernment indefinitely by the SNP or the complete breakup of the United Kingdom.
Amen. Peace.